Beautiful and palatial Ultimate Sports Talk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and welcome to tonight's edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly get together where we'll sit back for the next 60 minutes and talk about everything that's happening in the world of sports. Starting out with the Cleveland Browns, and is Bill Parcells really a part of the team? March Madness is going to be happening in just a couple of weeks. We'll talk about college basketball. Tiger's back in the news as he's down in Florida trying to battle the raindrops and trying to battle some back injuries. And also, NASCAR goes to Las Vegas. But first, it's history time today on the show. And tonight, we talk about the Cleveland Indians and their history. Why? Well, you're going to understand why in just a few moments. The Cleveland Indians originally were in the National League, and they enjoyed ultimate success and failure from the years 1891 through 1899. Led by Hall of Fame pitcher Cy Young, the Cleveland Spiders began play at a new ballpark, which was called League Park, which is still there and located on the corner of East 66th Street and Lexington Avenue in Cleveland. That happened on May 1st, 1891. Cleveland never led the National League in wins, but earned three trips to the National League equivalent of today's World Series in 1892, 1895, and 1896. Cleveland lost a postseason championship series to Boston in 1892, defeated Baltimore to win the Temple Cup championship series in 1895, and lost a Temple Cup rematch with Baltimore the following year. The Spiders began a tradition of championship professional baseball unmatched at any time up till then. A newsworthy addition to the 1897 Spiders was a player named Louis Sokalexis. Considered a supreme baseball talent, Sokalexis played just 94 games for the Spiders from 1897 through 1899, and his downfall mirrored that of Cleveland's National League club. When club owner Frank DeHaas Robinson, who also owned the National League's St. Louis franchise, sent Cleveland's best players west to St. Louis, the remaining players stumbled to the worst season in pro baseball history. They went 20 and 134. Cleveland was dropped from the National League, opening the door for a new franchise in a new league. And on January 17, 1914, two Cleveland newspapers helped make that happen. The Cleveland Leader and the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported that Indians had been chosen to replace Naps as the team's name. The Plain Dealer said at the time President Summers invited the Cleveland baseball writers to make the selection. The title of Indians was their choice, it having been one of the names applied to the old National League club of Cleveland many years ago when Chief Sokalexis first arrived. And in honor of him, we named the club the Indians. Well, the Indians suffered an abrupt downturn in fortune. Now the Indians would rise to glory with a new owner and star player is what the newspapers and the fans thought. Now let's fast forward to the year 2014. Now the Plain Dealer and others are leading the charge to eliminate the logo of a team that has been beloved no matter if they are winning, losing, or what since the turn of the century. Over one month ago, the Plain Dealer, one of the newspapers, as I said, that helped create the Indians' name went on record to abolish the Chief Wahoo logo. Now, if Cleveland City Councilman Zach Reed has his way, well, Chief Wahoo will no longer be part of the team's identity. He believes the tribe should retire the Chief, put it in mothballs, never use it again. Reed said this morning on CBS Sports 92.3 in Cleveland, he thinks Chief Wahoo should go. Well, for over 15 years, I've been saying the same thing. I mean, we've outgrown the Chief Wahoo logo, period. The same way NASCAR has outgrown the Confederate flag. As you look at it now, the Indians are ambassador. They're international. And as they go from city to city, country to country, you know, we want to show the best face. And is the best face a face that shows Native Americans smiling all the time. I, do Indians have it so bad that they don't smile? 
Reed says every opening day, Native Americans, along with himself, stand outside Progressive Field and protest the Chief Wahoo logo. I've seen these protesters. I've never seen Reed protesting with them. However, he neglects to state there are usually about 10 people protesting. A poll was run Tuesday by a Cleveland television station, WKYC. I voted in that poll. As of yesterday morning at 8.15, 2,662 votes had been cast. 87.4% of those votes cast disagreed with the abolishment of the Chief Wahoo logo. Of course, Reed has an explanation as to why. First of all, when you take a poll outside of the Cleveland market, like they did the other day, when you say the one that was inside the Cleveland market on WKYC, the vast majority of people in that, outside the Cleveland market say it should go. That's first. Second of all, when you look at Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with I Have a Dream speech, it was whites, it was blacks, it was Hispanics, it was all of the nation that stood up. So of us, those of us that believe that we need to stand with the Native American, with a way to depict some say 10%, some say 20%, at the end of the day, most Native Americans, whether it's 5%, 10%, believe it's offensive. They believe it's offensive. It's not for us to decide how many believe it's offensive. They believe it's offensive. So if anything else, let's compromise. If we want to show that the Cleveland Indians are, 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 are a good, good, good organization, which they are, they own black good people, which they are, and that we want to do a tribute to the Native Americans, then let's compromise. Aha! We've found out what Reed's modus operandi is. We've found out what his motive is here. He wants to be another Martin Luther King to the Native American people. That's what he wants. He wants to bring an uprising among the 0.30% Native American Indians in the state of Ohio. After all, most Native Americans are out west. They're on reservations in Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, and Arizona, along with a spattering in other states. Most all of them wear the Chief Wahoo hat that the Indians have. Now, Councilman Reed said the city does have a bargaining chip in these discussions with the Indians about Chief Wahoo because the city issues permits for the banners that hang over public sidewalks and the right-of-way around the stadium. Many feel the Indians are a private company, and the decision to eliminate Chief Wahoo or keep him is a decision for team ownership, otherwise known as the Dolans, to make. And actually, Reed is in favor of that, with only one caveat. I'm not disagreeing with that. And that's the reason I said, then don't put it on public polls. Don't put it on public buildings. Don't put it in public spaces. So if they want to continue to do it as a private sector, no one's saying they can't do it as a private sector. What I'm saying is then don't put it on public on public space. Right. The same way, the same way, if if the uh, races didn't want us sitting at their uh, lunch counters in North Carolina, the federal government had to step in and say something. Reed wasn't asked. I wish he would have been, but he wasn't asked this question and thus couldn't answer it. What about Chief Wahoo inside Progressive Field? He's talking about the banners right now that are up promoting opening day and the Indians returning on April 4th. But what about Chief Wahoo inside Progressive Field? Is that a public or private place? After all, it was built with public money. It's a public stadium. It's garnered by the laws of a public building where no smoking is allowed. Smoking is banned, even though smoking is one of the things that is taxed and helped build that stadium. That's the one ironic thing about it. Would the Wahoo logo be allowed inside the stadium? And would you be allowed to sell a Chief Wahoo hat or shirt in public? What if you were walking down the street wearing a Chief Wahoo logo, a hat, a pair of pants that had Chief, Lo Chief Wahoo on the side. Would that be an arrestable offense, according to Reed? And if you think I'm nuts going this far, just go back 20 years, and where would this have this discussion have been? 
Who would have thought we would have seen a black president in our, in our lifetime? And isn't it well known that the police, because cities right now are running out of money, including the city of Cleveland, are issuing more traffic tickets simply because they don't have the money in their coffers. The Indians have been slowly and silently abolishing the Wahoo logo ever since they purchased the Indians in 2001. The Wahoo hats have been used less and less on the field. The blue unis are becoming ancient, and Wahoo has only shown up mostly as a shoulder decal on the unis. Then this winter, the team announced their new logo is a Block C, which will become the most boring logo in baseball, maybe in the history of baseball, which used to be long to the Cincinnati Reds. That used to be the most boring. But at least the Reds have some curves to the C. The Indians are in a block. Reed claims other council members share his view. Mayor Frank Jackson in the past has said, if the chief is a problem for some people, it's a problem for him. Forget the troubles Cleveland has. Reed said this morning he's listening to people outside of his district. Outside his district. Well, for years, Cleveland has been the laughingstock to those outside of Cleveland. And many have tried to improve the city's image. Yet politicians inside the city do more to destroy the image than the city does. After all, all you've got to do is go back to the 1990s and realize that when the Cleveland City Council built Gateway, Progressive Field, which at that time was known as Jacobs Field, and the Gund Arena, which is now known as Quicken Loans Arena. There wasn't a need at the time for Gund Arena. The Cavaliers had their own building out in Richfield, the Richfield Coliseum. It was a beautiful building. It was one of the best facilities in the NBA at the time. The problem was it wasn't in downtown Cleveland, and thus the stores, the restaurants, and the bars did not participate in the fallout of people leaving the stadium after a game and participating in the drink and the food at those establishments. That was the problem. But unfortunately, what the Cleveland City Council and the mayor did at the time in pushing a new stadium for the Indians, which was needed, and a stadium now, a coliseum for the Cavaliers, which was not, it forced Art Modell to move from Cleveland to Baltimore, and we all know how that ended up happening. There are so many more problems in Cleveland than Chief Wahoo. Just as what happens in Washington, spending time on things that don't need fixing, so does local government. And Cleveland's leading the way today. Do politicians think getting rid of these caricatures like Chief Wahoo and the Braves logo or the Redskins logo on their helmet is actually going to make up for us putting the Native American Indians on reservations hundreds of years ago and taking their land? It's done. It's over. Let's move on from it. As Michael Douglas said in the movie The American President right at the end, Freedom of speech is hard. You have to work at it. Let's quit trying to abolish everything and let the First Amendment stand on its own merits. Time now to take a look at some other baseball news here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And it's bad news for the Kansas City Royals and possibly even worse for Luke Hoshaver. The reliever is going to be out for quite a while with a sprained ulnar collateral ligament in his right pitching elbow. If that is torn, of course, what that means is that Tommy John surgery will be needed to repair it. Manager Ned Yost told reporters that Hoshaver will be shut down for at least two weeks, and the club is hoping to have him back sometime in May. Hoshaver is 30 and had a breakout 2013 season. He ended with a 1.92 ERA, a .83 whip, and 82 strikeouts against only 16 unintentional walks in 70 and a third innings pitched. He was a major part of the Royals sporting the best bullpen ERA in the American League by a sizable margin, 2.55, to the Rangers' 2.91 ERA being second. Rick Ankiel has retired from baseball. Ankiel spent part of 11 seasons in the majors, 
the overwhelming majority of which came with the St. Louis Cardinals. And in case you don't know Ann Keel's story, it's really quite fascinating. He initially broke into the league in 1999 as a starting pitcher. In 2000, he went 11-7 and with a 3.50 ERA, and he finished second in the Rookie of the Year voting. He seemed to have a promising career for the St. Louis Cardinals, but then he lost his control and couldn't regain it, something known as the Steve Blass Syndrome. So fast forward to 2007, and Ankeel showed up as an outfielder with some pretty nice power. He'd homer 11 times in 172 at-bats that year. In 120 games the following season, Ankeel hit 25 homers. But now he's called it quits at the age of 34. And slugging great, Jim Tomey is working in the Chicago White Sox front office now, and he's loving it, but he wants everybody to know he's not retired. Tomey said in an interview this week he would take a call with an offer for a major league playing job, and he didn't hesitate about it at all. He said he would take the call. Tomey is 43 and right now is a special assistant to White Sox general manager Rick Hahn and last played in 2012, but he still hasn't announced his retirement, and the future Hall of Famer isn't kidding that he wouldn't mind playing again. If you look at his numbers, might not do a bad job either. He has 612 career home runs, and it's not like he didn't contribute when he last played in 2012 because he batted 252 with eight homers for the Phillies and the Baltimore Orioles. One more note on baseball. New Cleveland Indians closer, right-hander John Axford, fancies himself a motion picture aficionado. And the results really are proving it. When he leaves the game of baseball, he could always become a movie critic like Siskel and Ebert. Why, you ask? Well, a year ago, he correctly predicted 14 of 15 winners of the Academy Awards, missing only the best director, Angeli, for Life of Pi. Rookie mistake. Axford is still predicting the Oscars, and he's getting better at it, actually. Axford correctly called 18 of 18 Academy Awards for 2014 on Sunday night, which is a heck of a lot better than Don Mega, Greg Mitchell, and I did last week. Now, that's pushing the envelope, though, as far as getting 18 out of 18. And it's not like Axford hasn't gone off an extended tangent before. He once saved 49 straight games when pitching for the Brewers. He did leave out six awards during the show, so next year he promises he will be predicting all 24 awards. Okay, okay, okay. I know this is not the current NBA theme, but as far as I'm concerned, this theme song for the NBA is the best that there ever was, and I'm going to use it for my NBA theme song. So let's move into the NBA on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. On Saturday night in Cleveland, the Cavaliers will be honoring former center Zadruna Silgauskas with the retirement of his number 11. It's been a highlight for the team, the city, and Ilgauskas for months, but now a twist has been added, and maybe Big Z is not going to be the headline performer. That's because Miami Heat forward LeBron James will be in the house. James and Ogowskis played together the entire time James was in Cleveland, and Z followed James to Miami when he left in 2010. James' attendance at the ceremony would be legitimate, whatever its side benefits are. James and Ilgauskas are indisputably tight. They're tight. With all the condemnation ringing in bronze ears when he left Cleveland, Z followed with him to Miami three days later, playing one season with the Heat. And the implication is that the plan is about more for the Cavs than just honoring a former franchise anchor. Many think, including some national reporters, this isn't a coincidence. To them, it's a conspiracy. And what's funny is Miami, especially Pat Riley, might be thinking of tampering. Talk about ironic. Well, Ogowskis, now the Cavs' assistant GM, invited James. He wanted him there, asked him to come, and James accepted. 
The team set up this ceremony last October, and it just so happened to be on this two-day break in Miami's schedule, which made it possible for LeBron to come back. This thaw has been years in the making, fostered by James Insiders in Cleveland and Akron, passing the word around that the Cavs would be on Bron's list if he were to leave. Now, if that looks unlikely at the moment, with LeBron recently saying he doesn't see himself going anywhere, it's championship or bust for the Heat, don't believe it for two reasons. One, as I've been telling you now for about a month, LeBron's wife wants his children to graduate from Akron St. Vincent St. Mary High School. The second is the Miami Heat are in conservation mode after three finals runs with Dwayne Wade's health an ever larger issue. Heat officials, of course, are unhappy about this, but this isn't Shane Battier. With no inclination to disappoint James, the team has kept a low profile to this point, and they better. One doesn't want to rock the boat on the franchise's greatest player. Oh, wait a minute. That's already happened before in Cleveland. <laughs> well, it may be only early March, but we're starting to learn who the contenders and pretenders are in the NBA. One of those contenders to be is, appears to be the Houston Rockets, something my father has been telling me since late December. The Rockets' growth hasn't come without its bumps and bruises, though. But in dispatching the Miami Heat on Tuesday night and then Orlando last night, Houston has emerged as a dangerous and legitimate threat to reach the finals. Right now, the Rockets are 42-19. and They are tied with Portland for the third spot in the Western Conference playoff hunt. So we'll see what happens the rest of the way. Spencer Hawes of the Cleveland Cavaliers made headlines earlier this week when he said in his last days in Philadelphia before being traded, they were spent tanking the season so the Sixers could try and get the number one pick in the NBA draft in June, something that's been done around the NBA for years. But Charles Barkley, of course, of TNT Sports, has a solution for the elimination of tanking in the NBA. What well, teams have always tanked? <laughs> it's funny. Nobody complained when Pat Riley did it, uh, but now all of a sudden, I like what the Sixers are doing. They're not, they weren't going to win. Uh, I think resting Noel is going to be a huge boost for them going forward. Uh, so they're going to get two lottery picks next year to go with the guy who's probably going to be rookie of the year. Instead of paying a bunch of overpaid guys with a sorry team, let's, let's take the Pistons, for instance, got a sorry team. They're paying a bunch of guys. They're not any good. I can name a couple other teams. I want a young team with a bright future. I want cap space and draft picks. That's what has happened in the NBA. Uh, my suggestion, I suggested four years ago, the NBA is too stupid to listen to me. Listen, just give teams one ball. Don't give teams extra ball, extra ping pong balls by more they lose. I think only twice in the 20 years has a team with the worst record and the most balls got the number one pick. Only twice in like 25 years. So don't give teams extra balls because they're losing games. Just give every team in the lottery one ball. That would be the easiest way to handle it. Michael Carter-Williams will probably be rookie of the year in the league for the worst team, the Philadelphia 76ers. But has Spencer Hawes been a find for the Cleveland Cavaliers? Since coming over, he played the first couple of games off the bench, and now he's been moved into the starting lineup at center. He's a load to guard. The man's 7 feet, 1 inches tall, 265 pounds. He could shoot a three-pointer. He can go down low with a nice, soft hook shot. He is tough to defend for any team. If you can get... Kyrie, Dion Waiters, and Hawes all locked up for the next five or six years. I think you've got something there for the Cavaliers to build around. Pistons GM Joan Dumars is expecting to be fired at the end of the year, but reports are dismissing the possibility of the Pistons replacing him with his former championship backcourt mate Isaiah Thomas. And why in the world the Pistons would even think about Thomas coming in and taking over the Pistons, I have never have an idea. Now, either Dumars will step down or owner Tom Gorris will go in a different direction. 
Dumars, according to a source, is wary of the criticism he has received in trying to rebuild the Pistons after constructing a franchise that went to the Eastern Conference Finals six years in a row. That criticism, the source said, fails to account for a dismal Detroit economy and restraints placed on Dumars while the franchise was up for sale and ultimately changed ownership's hands. Dumars, of course, could not be reached for comment. And he has taken a ton of criticism after building the 2004 championship team that made at least the Eastern Conference Finals six years in a row. After that, the team's run was extinguished in 2009 by the Cavaliers with LeBron James. Dumars went out and used his cap space on Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon, and that set off a new rebuilding project. When the new ownership took over two years ago, Dumars was reportedly instructed to accelerate a rebuilding process that resulted in shelling out big money for Josh Smith this year and Brandon Jennings. Well, there's another disaster going on in the NBA, and this disaster is in New York, where the conversation about New York Knicks forward Carmelo Anthony's summer 2014 free agency opt-out has evolved quite a bit. The New York Daily News reports one significant facet that people close to Anthony don't want to wait for a future rebuild. And if the Knicks are going to keep him, they have to make moves this summer for next year, period. The counter-argument is that Anthony needs a better supporting cast, which is true. But the Knicks' salary cap situation is such that if they re-sign Anthony, they'll have to wait until 2015 to add that second star. For one, I'm hearing that Anthony's camp is interested only in the summer of 2014. They don't want to hear about 2015. And I believe they're right, because Anthony will be 31 with a lot of NBA miles on him, and he can't wait for reinforcements. So, what are the Knicks to do? Well, CBS Sports NBA analyst Matt Moore explains where Anthony could end up. I think anywhere where he's got a ball-dominant point guard. He needs to find somewhere where he's got somebody to find shots for him because when he's creating them in isolation, have jab-step opportunities, the efficiency of the offense goes down, no one else gets engaged, and you see the results in New York. Going somewhere like Boston with Rajon Rondo, if the Knicks aren't able to pull him off, I think that might be a good fit. Derrick Rose in Chicago is very intriguing. You look at Kobe Bryant in L.A., that's a kind of a dangerous mixer, I think, with the kind of usage that both those players demand. Chicago might be the best fit for market as well as the kind of staff and obviously having Thibodeau to lead the defense for him. It's been amazing to see really everything that could go wrong for this team has. And while much of it you can look at and say there was decision-making on the part of the Knicks, trading for Andrea Bargnani, not getting better backup point guard depth, a lot of it's just been a perfect storm. And you really wonder what's gone on in that locker room to have changed things so much because it's not just a matter of ability or talent or really any of the other schematic things. It's an effort problem now, and you're seeing that more and more with every loss. There's really no upside. There are no bright sides of what's going on in New York. Well, Kevin Love and Rajon Rondo headline the 2015 free agency class. New York will always be an attractive location because it's New York. But the top superstars like Rondo and Love are also going to take winning very seriously into consideration and how the organization is run. And right now, the New York Knicks is not a very well-run organization. And the last time Kyle Korver failed to make a three-point shot in a game was on November 2nd, 2012, when he played for the Atlanta Hawks. After that, he made at least one in 127 consecutive games, establishing an NBA record, breaking the old mark of 89 games held by Dana Barrows. Korver shattered Barrows' mark by 38 games, but couldn't extend it on Wednesday against the Trailblazers, going 0 for 5 from three-point range, and 1 for 9 overall in 28 minutes. So if you're scoring at home, Corver's streak lasted the duration of an entire NBA season and then 75% of another one. One three made in 127 straight games is just crazy to think could happen. The current longest active three-point streak going on in the NBA right now, Stephen Curry of Golden State. He's at 50 games in a row. Well, 
Well, we weren't able to do our good, the bad, and the ugly segment last week because we were in the middle of our Academy Award projection show, which had a great time doing it last week. Glad that Don Mega could show up and also Greg Mitchell for being our guest last week. But let's get back into the swing of things and the good, the bad, and the ugly for this week. And our good story, finding the perfect person to take the prom can be nerve-wracking for high school seniors and juniors. So imagine how Texas high school senior Michael Ramirez must have felt when he messaged Houston Texans cheerleader Caitlin Beth on Twitter asking for her to be his prom date if he was able to get 10,000 retweets. And he got a yes. Just over 24 hours after Ramirez tweeted a screen grab of the direct message exchange with Beth, who began following him on the social media site Thursday morning along with another Texans cheerleader, likely inspiring the scheme, the Crosby High School offensive lineman reached 10,000 retweets and scored himself a date to the prom. After following the retweeting action closely, Beth sent out official word that she can't wait for prom shortly after Ramirez picked up his 10,000th retweet. You know this is going to happen more and more. It started years ago on the Howard Stern Show with a porn actress and a high school student. And when a celebrity is asked to go to the prom and turn someone down, they are going to be held up for such ridicule. But in this case, hey, Caitlin Beth is a star and has made one young man very happy in the state of Texas. Well, here's our bad story for the night. It's been nearly three full years since Manny Ramirez last played in the big leagues, but he has not yet given up hope on a return to Major League Baseball. According to reports, Manny is currently working out near Miami and insists he's not yet retired, just like Jim Tomey that I talked about earlier. Ramirez, who turns 42 in May, played 30 games in AAA last summer after signing a minor league contract with the Rangers. He hit 259 with three doubles and three homers and was released when the team determined he could not help them at the major league level. Manny played briefly in AAA with the Athletics in 2012 before signing with the EDA Rhinos in Taiwan. He hit 352 there with eight homers and more walks than strikeouts, 23 opposed to 21, in 206 plate appearances with the Rhinos before hooking on with Texas. It's really hard to see another major league team giving Manny a chance at this point, not given his declining skills and his two performance-enhancing drug-related suspensions. I think it's time for Manny to just take his ball and go home. Well, our ugly for the night, were you able to see the tirade Mick Cronin of Cincinnati went on with referee Ted Valentine on Saturday in the Cincinnati-Connecticut game? It's always been fun to watch coaches work over officials, but in the past two or three years, we've seen officials become instigators of arguments on the sidelines, and that's exactly what happened on Saturday in that Cincinnati game. Here's how it sounded from ESPN. Fight for the loose ball, and everybody hustling after this when Ted Valentine comes out with it. And Mick Cronin right in the face of Valentine, and Ted Valentine right back at him. And Jackson trying to restrain his coach, and Mick Cronin looks like he wants a technical. Really a good piece of fishing by Teddy Valentine right there, walking away. I'm not sure who the color analyst was in that game, but how he ever saw Valentine walk away is beyond me. He had to be looking down at his notes at that time. And how he thought it was a great piece of officiating, again, is beyond me. In fact, it was another official who came in and pulled Valentine away from Cronin while Jackson was pushing Cronin away from Valentine. Valentine had no business as the lead official and the one responsible for keeping calm and a professional demeanor on the floor of putting his face into the face of Mick Cronin, no matter what Cronin said. If Valentine was that upset about what Cronin said, he should have been slapped with a technical foul and Valentine walk to the other side of the floor. But here lately over the past few years, Ted Valentine, especially with Ed Hightower not taking as many officiating jobs 
as he normally has. And Ed Hightower, to me, was the absolute worst official I have ever seen in my life. He always wanted to put himself above the ball game. And Ted Valentine is walking down the same straight and narrow, wanting to put himself above everybody else. After all, it was Ted Valentine who had several nose-to-nose confrontations with Bobby Knight. It was Ted Valentine who actually threw fans out of an Auburn game a couple of years ago. This was poor officiating by Valentine. And for something like that to happen, officials should be publicly reprimanded and suspended publicly. Fans right now don't know when officials work or where they're going to work. So a suspension to an official without being made public, really isn't a suspension. And fans need to know if an official has had something administratively done to him. That makes the game stronger, and it makes your officials stronger. They're more accountable. UConn ended up beating Cincinnati in that game 51-45. And considering the display Jim Beheim put on two weeks ago in Duke, Fans are now starting to wonder how officials and coaches can actually get along and what is going to happen in the tournament coming up in just a couple of weeks. Well, Bill Raftery, one of my favorite color analysts from Fox Sports, talks about how the refs and coaches can get along. There's so much pressure involved and do something immediately. And I think the officials are in that position, too. You know, it's been a long year, a lot of travel, a lot of angst uh, during the course of the season. Uh, but, you know, years ago, when you had a program you were trying to prove yourself, you would have let those officials know you were part of it. And, and in other words, we have a chance in this particular game, and I think you can see that in some of the commotions along the sideline. I think the difference between now and 30 years ago Every game is on TV. Uh, I think everything you do is witnessed by young people, recruits, and families. Uh, I, I think a lot of guys have toned it down. They're understated. They do it in a timeout where it's a little secretive and protective. Uh, so I, I think a lot of guys are maybe stepping over the line. Jim Beheim, for example, I loved it in a sense because you know, here's a guy who still loves the game, and I know he was totally out of order and, and did some things that you know I'm sure he or he has said he regrets. But I remember throwing my coat when I was. Coaching. Nobody returned it. Obviously, it wasn't worth too much, uh, but nobody cared. Uh, now, this is, you know, number one team in the country. They're struggling a little bit, and he sees a situation that's going to cost him a game in his mind, and he, he loses it quite a bit. But I, I think guys are getting better. Uh, I think the referees and the coaches are, you know, they have a, a dialogue now that maybe they didn't have years ago and a respect, plus the office overlooks and sees calls and talks to the officials and a lot of things that maybe years ago would slide by, but they're now all they, they, they hone in on them and they try and address them. Well, it's hard to believe that officials can be that cantankerous and really be the instigators of some fights, verbal fights, not physical altercations, but verbal fights that happen on the basketball floor. Something needs to be done, and officials need to be held as accountable as coaches are. That's going to do it for our Good, the Bad, and the Ugly segment. Thanks for joining us here tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And you know what? It's hard to believe, but next week we are going to be in the middle of the major conference tournaments. The mid-major conference tournaments in college basketball are going on this week, and next week you're going to see the major conference tournaments, the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big East, the Pac-12, the Big 12, all the major conferences having their conference tournaments. And then next Sunday night, a week from this Sunday night, it will be the tournament selection show. So college basketball coming to a wind-up here very, very quickly. In about a month, we'll be singing in the Final Four going on in the NCAA College Basketball Tournament. Well, in case you don't know it, football is a 12-month-out-of-the-year endeavor. 
and it continues on and on and on. And we'll be talking about draft and front office personnel and free agency going on right through the month of May when the NFL draft will be held in New York City. That's how it goes in the world of the NFL, in the world of the NFL today, I guess I should say. Well, there's still some more going on in the league, and we learned last month that Cleveland's protracted coaching search included not only a run at Jim Harbaugh, but Jimmy Haslam had a chat with Bill Parcells. Now it appears Parcells is helping the Browns with their quarterback search, at least. On Thursday, the Hall of Fame coach confirmed to the NFL media's Gil Brandt that he met with Browns owner Jimmy Haslam in Florida as a courtesy consultant for the team. No word on if there's any pay involved and if this will ever lead to a full-time gig. Browns coach Mike Pettin revealed this week that the team declined to interview Johnny Manziel or any quarterback at the Combine, which led many talk show hosts in Cleveland especially one little weasel that comes from Colorado, to go ballistic on the Browns for not speaking with anyone. Frankly, I didn't see it was that big a deal when the Browns didn't speak with anyone. That means very little considering that Cleveland has plenty of time to fly everyone in for a visit. They've got 20 visits that they can put people through. And we don't know if Parcells is helping you get that work underway, but it couldn't hurt. It's also been reported that Parcells recently sat down with Louisville quarterback Teddy Bridgewater in Florida for more than four hours. Parcells said he came away impressed with the draft prospect's humility and football knowledge, saying Bridgewater presented himself as a well-spoken and secure young man. So is Bridgewater the man the Browns want? Is everything else a smokescreen? One wonders why Parcells would even meet extensively with a college prospect during his retirement. One thing is certain, though, the Browns' newly organized front office with Mike Pettin and Ray Farmer, and with or without Parcells in it, is certainly keeping everyone guessing. Well, Indianapolis Colts owner Jim Ursay took to Twitter on Thursday morning to announce that the team had agreed to terms with a new member of its defense. Dequell Jackson, formerly of the Browns, is now the new inside linebacker for the Colts. Jackson will be reunited with last year's Browns coach, Rob Chudzinski, who took a job as a special assistant to head coach Chuck Pagano. Pagano also saw a lot of Jackson over the years when he was on the Baltimore Ravens staff. Jackson should plug into the Colts lineup next to Jarrell Freeman and should be an upgrade from what the Colts got from a variety of players filling the position in 2013. The Titans, Broncos, and Dolphins also met with Jackson, but we'll have to look elsewhere now for help at linebacker. Jackson was signed to a four-year deal worth $22 million with an $11 million guarantee in his contract, which may only be guaranteed for injury alone. It's a good deal for the Colts. The Browns lost a good linebacker, but they were losing with him. They can lose without him. In other NFL free agency news. Denver has informed Champ Bailey he will be released in what is one of several expected moves for the aging cornerbacks in the league. Bailey joins Cortland Finnegan, Dunta Robinson, Asante Samuel as veteran corners to be let go, while Antonio Cromartie and Dimitri Patterson are also likely to be let go as well. Bailey suffered through an injury plague 2013 but returned in time for Denver's Super Bowl appearance. He could contemplate a switch to safety if he opts to continue his very distinguished career elsewhere. Bailey is a former first-round pick of Washington and was dealt to the Broncos in 2004 as part of the big deal for Clinton Portis, who ended up as a steal for Denver. Devin Hester said that he will not be returning kicks for the Chicago Bears next year. Hester on the NFL Network said that the team has released him and... He thanked the Bears fans for their support and indicated he would like to retire as a Bear. Hester is 31, and he's played with the Bears since being picked in the second round of the 2006 NFL Draft and has made the Pro Bowl three times. He is tied for first in NFL history with Deion Sanders for special teams return touchdowns with 19. 
And the Philadelphia Eagles will not be bringing back Michael Vick, according to league and team sources. The Eagles are going in a different direction and with the backup quarterback spot and are not interested in retaining Vick, sources said. Nick Foles is the Eagles starter, and they will explore other veterans to help man the position. Where could Vick end up? Well, supposedly, he has got a date with the Minnesota Vikings. Let's see if he ends up there. Colin Kaepernick won't be signing any contract for $18 million a season, not for $18.5 million per season either. And the 49ers already know this, according to some around the NFL. Their negotiations with their young franchise quarterback are still in their infancy, but they're quite aware there aren't any bargain deals to be had with Kaepernick. Far from it. Talks with their quarterback, if they truly get off the ground, will begin at $20 million a year. I always feel like Dr. Evil in the Austin Power movies. You know, $20 million. <laughs> CBS sports reporter Jason Lockenfora reports on Kaepernick and his negotiation style. This kid will take the same approach Joe Flacco took to his upcoming contract negotiations. He can't get what he believes he's worth to the penny. He'll play out that rookie deal. He'll force the 49ers' hand in 2015 and say, what are you going to do? Are you going to franchise me? Do you really want to go down that road? Remember with Joe Flacco, he played it out, won a Super Bowl, ended up going from a $16 million man to a $20 million man. Colin Kaepernick's going to command a deal in the top five in the NFL. He's going to be in the range with the Flaccos and the Matt Ryans around $20 million a year. Compare him to every quarterback in the league since he became a starter in November of 2012. The numbers are there. The playoff wins are there. The big moments are there. He's having uh, success running the football that's frankly unparalleled at the quarterback position in the history of the game. Look at his scrimmage yards. Look at his total touchdowns. Again, go back to some of his playoff performances. Yes, he needs to get more accurate. Yes, he's still somewhat raw, but he's played through three years of this contract. He's been an absolute steal. And if he has to play 2014 for a million to get to 2015, I'm telling you, the kid will do that. This kid isn't going anywhere, and the 49ers already know. If he stays on a long-term deal now, those talks start at around $20 million a year. Well, as Lockton Forrest said, Baltimore's Joe Flacco was the prime free agent signee a year ago when he signed in at around $16.6 million annually. Now, the Ravens could have signed him in 2011, and it could have been at around $20.1 million annually as was the case when they signed him after the 2012 season. Timing, alas, is everything. And time is very, very much on Kaepernick's side right now. Well, we haven't heard that theme for quite a while, the college football theme. But the big rule that has been talked about, kicked around, and bandied about for the last month or so is being blamed on Alabama coach Nick Saban. But he isn't taking credit for the 10-second rule, which I'm sure you've probably heard about, that was tabled was scheduled to be voted on today by the NCAA Playing Rules Oversight Panel, but then it was tabled when they decided there just wasn't enough positive ruling on it. But, as Saban says, he's adamant that the pace of play in college football bears a closer look as it relates to player safety. Saban is largely considered the man to blame for the proposed rule that would slow down up-tempo offenses for safety concerns. So, what is the 10-second rule? ESPN's SEC writer, Chris Lowe, explains the 10-second rule in college football. Essentially, if you snap the football in the first 10 seconds of the 40-second clock, you'll be penalized. It's essentially a, a period where you know teams could get lined up, could get set. Uh, you, if you need to get somebody into the game defensively, you can, and that's why... You know, the offenses or teams that like to play fast and like to play hurry up, no huddle, obviously aren't in favor of this. 
more plays, the more exposures a player has, uh, the more or the greater risk they are at, at being injured, whether it's a concussion, whether it's any type of injury. And I think Nick Saban, let's face it, he's a defensive-minded guy. Defensive-minded guys like to be able to substitute in players. Uh, he's been on record as saying he doesn't think football should be a continuous game. He feels like the whole blocking, tackling part of it is, has been is not nearly as important as it used to be. Now it's who can get lined up the fastest. But I think more over and above all that, and all my conversations with Nick Saban is, he thinks this is a safety issue and something that will benefit the players if the pace of play and the number of snaps in games are decreased. Well, safety concerns may or may not be real. Only 25 of the nation's 128 FBS head coaches are in favor of the proposal, according to a survey conducted by ESPN's Brett McMurphy. Saban talked to ESPN.com about the rule and says he doesn't care about taking the blame for it. He just believes this is a safety issue, and it's something that should be looked into further. Is this a case of safety, or is Saban trying to get a competitive advantage since the team that runs this offense mostly is Auburn and Texas A&M, Alabama's rival in the SEC? Low looks into that. Well, and that's, and that's the, the great debate. You know, coaches on the you know, the side of it that, that run faster offenses are saying that coaches are hiding, and it's an agenda, they're hiding behind the guys yeah. of, of player safety. Now, you know, as Nick said, hey, you can't crawl into my mind and know what I'm thinking. He addressed the committee on two issues, on the safety part of it and on the officials in the game being able to administrate the game. I think that's a problem, too. You go watch college football now, it's harder and harder for officials to officiate the game to be in place because teams are going so fast. Those are the two topics, as he addressed the committee last month, the rules committee, uh, that he talked about. Saban's on record as saying he doesn't think football should necessarily be a continuous game. He'd like to see the officials dictate the pace of the game more so than offenses, similar to what happens in the NFL. Now, Clemson's Dabo Sweeney said the rule makes no sense and added that to hide behind player safety is wrong because it's just not factual. The thing about football is, folks, people get hurt, players get hurt. And this rule, I think it's a bad rule, is now tabled for at least one year. Mike Slive says there's too much to do to consider stepping away from his post as SEC commissioner, so he's staying put. Slive said on Tuesday he plans to return for the 2014-15 academic year. His contract is set to expire at the end of 2013-14. and 14. And last offseason, he would not commit to sticking around beyond his contract. But now Slive says there's too much going on for him to leave. And several SEC presidents have spoken out in favor of Slive remaining the league's commissioner, giving the impression that he will get to determine his own exit plan. Slive is 73 and has been the commissioner of the SEC since 2002 after a stint as the Conference USA Commissioner from 1995 through 2002. And as I have mentioned time and time and time again, the NCAA is on its deathbed. The clock is ticking and changes are coming. And what we see now in the NCAA will not be what we will see in a decade. And the NCAA is facing monumental problems already faced with a potentially massive lawsuit addressing the use of player images and likenesses, the NCAA may have to respond to another lawsuit on a different front. Lawyers for a former West Virginia running back have proposed a class action suit against the NCAA and the five power conferences, alleging that the association violated antitrust laws by placing a cap on the value of athletic scholarships which was below the actual cost of attending schools. Essentially, as the suit claims, there are out-of-pocket expenses that aren't covered by a full scholarship. A study from 2012 found that out-of-pocket expenses for a full scholarship FBS athlete in the year 2011 and 12 ranged from $1,000 a year to $6,900 per year, depending upon the school. The suit was filed by former Mountaineer running back Sean Alston and seeks to represent former FBS scholarship football players who played at those five conferences 
since February of 2010. The SEC, Big Ten, ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12 were all cited as defendants along with the NCAA. Now, this complaint asserts collusion from the power conferences because they have stated they would implement the cost of attendance stipend if they were not bound by collusive agreements with smaller cash-strapped schools. Currently, the NCAA hasn't agreed to allow schools to provide an extra $2,000 stipend to help cover the gap, but at the NCAA convention in January, there was talk of providing extra benefits for the athletes from the power conferences. This could, of course, potentially provide a recruiting boost for the schools hailing from the power conferences. The suit seeks to reverse NCAA rules that prohibit an extra stipend for athletes while also recovering damages for the expenses athletes were forced to pay when their scholarships didn't cover everything under the cost of living provision. The suit alleges that Alston had to take out a $5,500 loan to cover the difference while he was at West Virginia. And aside from this suit, the firm of Hagens, Bermans, Sobel, and Shapiro is involved with the NCAA in settlement talks over the concussion issue, as well as representing former college quarterback Sam Keller as part of the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. The 2014 Cadillac Championship was delayed on Thursday after just a few hours of play. The weather today was nasty, and the tournament is being played just outside of Miami, and of course you expect that kind of weather this time of year in Florida. Jason Duffner currently leads at 5-under, while Russell Hanley is one back at 4-under, and Luke Donald and Patrick Reed trail by two at 3-under each. Tiger Woods is playing this weekend. He addressed the media yesterday for his first public chat since he withdrew from the Honda Classic last Sunday with back spasms. He said he's ready to go in defense of this tournament, saying he feels better and has been receiving treatment nonstop for the past two days. Woods said his back made him feel like he couldn't even stand up straight and couldn't move, and it got to a point where he couldn't even twist. And NASCAR takes its show on the road to Las Vegas this weekend, and we don't think there's going to be any NASCAR destination that offers as much bang for the buck as the four-day weekend in Las Vegas. Sunday's Cobalt Tools 400 is on tap. Four-time Vegas winner Jimmy Johnson is the 7-1 favorite to win big on Sunday, followed by Kevin Harvick and last year's winner Matt Kenseth are 15-2. But the biggest buzz of all is around Dale Earnhardt Jr. Coming off a win in Daytona and a runner-up finish in Phoenix, he'll be looking for his first Vegas win and comes in at 8-1 odds. Danica Patrick will look to turn her season around this weekend at the Motor Speedway as her first two weeks have ended with damaged race cars. The first at Daytona wasn't totally unexpected as drivers often get caught up in wrecks, but Patrick wound up 40th in the 500. And then last week's wreck was especially frustrating. And while she was able to finish the race, her 38th place finish was far from the potential top 20. But for now... Junior is the major player in the game, and because of his success thus far, he will be the most heavily bet driver on the weekend in Las Vegas. Well, got some house cleaning notes before tonight's show ends. First of all, want to wish a happy birthday to my baby brother. I won't tell you exactly how old Mike is, but he's in double digits and he's in the 40s, so that may give you a good idea there as to just how old he is. I asked him what keeps him older, his age or his daughters today, and he told me definitely the daughters. So congratulations, Mike. Happy birthday. And don't forget this weekend is daylight savings time if you're in that time zone, which I am. So don't forget to turn your clocks ahead this weekend. You'll be jumping ahead. Of course, it's always spring ahead, fall back. Well, we're supposedly in the spring if the Mother Nature ever gets the memo. And don't forget, coming up on Monday night, March 10th, if nothing tells you that spring is on its way, this will. Mark Donahue and I will be back with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. It will be at 9 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk. Mark and I will be talking about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds once again for the fourth consecutive year. And like I said... 
That will be at 9 o'clock on Monday night. Our thanks to everyone who listened this evening. You're the most important people on this show, no doubt about it. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being the producer. Don't forget Monday night. We'll be back next Thursday night also at 7 o'clock with another Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good weekend, everybody. Until then, good night.